Welcome to Plato's Pods. Today is March 14, 2021. This podcast is audio recording of a live meetup group. We meet through Toronto Philosophy Meetup, Calgary Philosophy Meetup, Online Rebels Meetup. I'm Ave Ellis. I'll be coordinating this episode. I would like to pass the screen now and the microphone, of course, to James for today's discussion. James? Well, thank you, Eva, and welcome everyone to our discussion today on Plato's Carmody. So the Carmody's is not one of Plato's more widely known or widely quoted dialogues, but I think it, it has a particular resonance, I think, especially with the dialogues that we've discussed in our past few episodes, starting with the Timaeus. We had a few sessions on the Timaeus, and I think there's some themes from the Timaeus and then our discussion on the, on the Mino two weeks ago that, that will follow through quite logically, I think, in this dialogue. And so in this dialogue, we're, we're looking at the nature of science itself uh, and connecting science to knowledge and trying to understand what is knowledge and what is not knowledge. So a very important dialogue and one that I was very surprised to discover a number of things in this. So very much looking forward to our discussion today. Just before we launch into our discussion, I wanted to say, I think what we'll do next is uh, Phaedrus. Uh, so in two weeks, we'll start with Phaedrus. And we'll do that in a couple of sessions. So I'll post the, uh, the notice for that in a few days. Uh, we'll, we'll start with the first 20 or so pages of Phaedrus and then um, proceed to do the, the remainder of it in, in the following session. So that, that will be next up. And uh, as always, for those participating here, if um, you know, we're free to um, ask questions, make comments, make observations, uh, we don't have to follow any set plan. I do have a few questions that I've designed today to keep the discussion flowing if we reach a point where we need to uh, find a point to, to launch a discussion from. And the, the questions are designed to really kind of cover the majority of the material in the dialogue, but we don't have to, to stick to any set agenda, as I said. So it's always, you know, what our participants feel like discussing, I think, is the, the important thing. And certainly Plato wouldn't want it any other way. I think it's the importance of dialogue is to make sure that we understand each other, learn from each other, and explore new, new ideas. And there's so many new ideas in here that we can't possibly do it all justice in two hours of, of discussion, but we'll do our best. So especially interested to see what everybody feels, you know, what, what parts of this dialogue really uh, resonated with you um, as well. Um, so, so um, and participants, if you would use the raise hands feature when you'd like to speak, and I will call on people sort of in the order that the hands are raised. And again, with preference to people who haven't spoken before. So without further ado, we'll, uh, we'll start. The, uh, the discussion today, and I, what I thought we would do to start off with is look at a short, uh, it's just under three minutes, it's a video clip, and it's a video clip by Brian Cox, who's a, a physicist, and Brian is somebody who I admire greatly for his philosophical approach to science. In fact, when Brian was in Toronto, I think it was two years ago, I went to see him, and he had a really engaging presentation. He talked about Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is a very complex theory, but he put it in a way that I think really related to the audience. And there was about a thousand people in the audience. It was quite a large crowd. And so I think everybody was really following what he was saying and very engaged and interested. But near the end, Brian said, and what is the meaning of this all? And all of a sudden, the room erupted into applause as soon as he said the word meaning, because I think we're all sort of searching for meaning. And uh, it was a really 
it was a powerful experience to be in that room uh, with, with Brian, a very you know well-renowned and respected physicist whose interest in science really branches beyond physics into biology and chemistry. And uh, in fact, this this clip that we're just about to listen to is from his BBC series, The Wonders of Life. Uh, and so he does talk a lot about biology in this particular series. So let's just take a, a listen to this clip because the question that Brian asks at the end of the clip, I thought was a really good place to maybe launch our discussion today, to launch our own dialogue today with the, the question that Brian asks at the, the very end of this clip of about three minutes. So if you would bear with us, Eva, if you would uh, play the clip, that would be appreciated. Tonight is November the 1st, and here in Sigada, in fact, across the Philippines, that means that it's the Day of the Dead. That's the day when people come to this graveyard on a hillside and well, celebrate the lives of their relatives. The people light fires to honour and warm the departed inviting their souls to commune with them. <laughs> yeah, no matter how unscientific it sounds, this, this idea that there's some kind of soul or spirit or animating force that makes us what we are and that persists after our death is is common virtually every culture every religion has that deeply held belief and there's a reason for that because it feels right i mean just think about it it's hard to accept that when you die you will just stop existing and that you are your life the the essence of you is just really something that emerges from an inanimate bag of stuff. Mama tiak ay wala nang spirits da. Kanayon ay kakadwami mut lang. At siya din nang amok ay kakadwami mut lang da ida isnan. Kagadinan ano ka kakalkalimi da ida ay silently. You can see that these people feel not only that they come to celebrate the lives of their relatives, but they're coming in some sense to, to, to communicate with them. Their relatives, even though their physical bodies have died, are still in some sense here. And when you think about it, that's not so easy to dismiss. I mean, if we are to state that science can explain everything, about us, then it's incumbent on science to, to answer the question, what is it that animates living things? What is the difference between a piece of rock that's carved into a gravestone and me? Thank you. That's, uh, I, I just found that to be such a powerful question right at the end there. And, and so here we have Brian Cox, a scientist, asking what are the limits of science, I think. Uh, and, and he says that it's incumbent on science to explain. If, it, if science says that it can explain everything, it's incumbent on science to explain the difference between a physical 
object, which is the rock or the, the gravestone in that, uh, in that little video clip, and himself, which is not a physical object entirely. The self is more than a physical object. And we saw that in, in the Timaeus. We saw that in, in the Mino. We've seen that in the other dialogues that we've looked at, the, the, the Fido, uh, that beautiful dialogue about the soul. And so in that video clip, Brian talks about soul as well. And so I just thought we could launch our discussion today on, on the Carmides, which talks about science with the with the, the question that Brian asked at the end, and, and maybe the related question, which uh, is present in the dialogue, is knowledge of all knowledge, including of that which is not knowledge, logically possible? And I'm just wondering what, what our participants feel about that. What, uh, what do you think about that question that, uh, that Brian asked at the end of the video? Donald? My hand went up not because of the end, but really because what... Brian Cox said at the beginning that it was a day on which the people were celebrating the lives of their relatives. Well, of course, in this dialogue, and maybe this is, I'm sure this is not where you want to go, but in my study of Plato, it was where I was driven. In this dialogue, Plato doesn't really celebrate. Critias and Carmides are two of Plato's relatives. It's his uncle and his uncle's cousin. And he's far from celebrating their lives. In fact, he's showing that they're basically idiots that don't know how to control themselves or control others, and therefore should have avoided their role in the 30, the tyranny that took control of Athens at the end of the Peloponnesian War. So I, I thought at the beginning when he opened with that line that whoever selected this film was like so prescient. I mean, this is, this, as you say, there's, there's the end, but there's also this beginning that has a strong irony to it that I think also makes it a wonderful introduction to the Carmides, and that's that's enough from me. Well, well thank you, and uh, yeah, I mean, certainly the, the question, you know, the, that he asked at the beginning, and certainly this whole setting of being in a graveyard and, and celebrating the life, but also the memory of, of those who had passed before, uh, I think is such an important idea that uh, that Plato certainly develops, and you know, you know, the the, the actual history that follows the characters uh, Critias and Carmides. I mean, the uh, Carmides is is a character who really doesn't appear very much in the story uh, in 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 the dialogue. Um, you know, Critias I think is the one that's doing more of the talking here. Um, but you know, certainly. Certainly, at the beginning of the dialogue, Critias presents a number of uh, ideas about what temperance is. So, temperance is is one of the four virtues that Plato brought to us in in the Republic. Uh, temperance is one of the four virtues, and we can think of temp temperance as meaning self control. Um, and certainly, there was maybe an absence of self control in the uh, in the tyranny that, that you mentioned, Donald, that, uh, that actually put Socrates to death eventually. And we, we saw that when we talked about the apology. Um, 
but you know, I guess the the question is, you know, what is the self that that we're trying to control? You know, if we're if we're talking about self control and temperance, which is the theme that the dialogue begins with, um, Critias puts forward five different propositions about temperance, um, and I'm just wondering too what what people think about these five different propositions that are put forward at the beginning. You know, are they are they logical? Are they propositions that um, maybe self the way self-control is maybe sometimes defined not by ourselves, but by society uh, that we live in. And so uh, it's certainly an interesting theme to pick up on as well. So whether it's the question at the beginning or, or the idea at the beginning of the video that, that Brian presents or the question at the end, I'm just wondering again, is knowledge of all knowledge, uh, including what is not knowledge, uh, logically possible? And this is a theme that, uh, you know, again, Socrates talked about in the Apology when, when uh, he relates the story of what the Oracle at Delphi said. It's a story that comes through his friend Caraphon. And the Oracle at Delphi said that Socrates was the smartest man alive, for he knew one thing, which is that he knew nothing. Um, in fact, the, the quote from um, the quote from the Apology. Um, this is Socrates talking. Uh, he says, I am wiser than this man. It is likely that neither of us knows anything worthwhile, but he thinks he knows something when he does not. Whereas when I do not know, neither do I think I know. So I'm likely to be wiser than he to the small extent that I do not think I know what I do not know. And that was in Apology 21D. Um, so again, you know, this, this nature of knowledge and this idea of science as being, you know, we have scientific method, we have ways of doing science. And so science is, I think, you know, maybe we can talk about the definition of science because that, that's throughout this dialogue. I mean, how do people perceive science? Um, is, is science the division of knowledge from what is not knowledge? So is science the, the word that we use for the dividing line between that which is knowledge and that was, which is not knowledge. What do people think about that? The, the idea of the definition of science uh, and, and what are you getting from this dialogue in terms of um, Plato's approach to that definition or, or the questions that Plato wants us to consider in that definition? Any thoughts about that? If you have knowledge, for example, of something, does that mean you also know what is not knowledge? Is knowledge and not knowledge, are they equal and opposites? Certainly equal and opposites are a big theme that Plato plays on. Uh, we saw that in, uh, in the Timaeus, for example, this idea of equal and opposites and then combining the equal and opposites um, with, with some sort of bond, which he talked about in the creation of the universe in, uh, in Timaeus. Any thoughts on that? When, uh, JK. Yeah, well, science claims to know quite a bit because I, I think uh, I heard a um, discussion with um, the scientists, a scientist was at, um, who was says that well, we we uh, you know we know four percent of what there is, and ninety six percent is dark matter and dark energy, but um, but we know. But since we know the, the laws of the 4%, then we can extrapolate that um, 
you know, about what the 96% is, is, even though it's, it's not known. And, um, but eventually we'll get there, so forth. But the, uh, so that's, that's kind of a, um, science, you know, makes these kind of leaps of, uh, of knowledge. Um, I don't know if it's, if it's self-confidence or, you know, definitely not, not based on, on, on fact, the fact of what we can know. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think you have a good example there, JK, with the, you know, the dark matter and the dark energy. So we use these words dark or science, the scientists use the dark, the words dark. They know that uh, dark energy and dark matter exists, but they don't really know what it is. They just know that it exists because they can def they can detect it through its gravitational effect, for example. Uh, and they know that that dark matter and dark energy actually comprise ninety five percent, I think, of the universe. That the the actual physical universe seems to be only five percent. And so there's this great proportion of the universe that is unknown. Um, that makes me think of the the theme that Plato sets in Timaeus 28a. I keep going back to Timaeus 28a because it's that, that distinction that he makes between uh, that which always is and never becomes and that which becomes and never is. Um, and, and those two distinctions that he makes require, he says, uh, a different level of understanding. So the so the realm, realm of that which always is but never becomes requires a reasoned account in order to understand it. Um, and by contrast, that which becomes but never is requires the unreasoning senses to, to comprehend it. So, um, so there's that distinction. I think that's an important distinction maybe in the pursuit of science perhaps, uh, is to understand the, the different types of knowledge, I guess, that we can apply to things. And so the example that you use, JK, of, of dark matter and dark energy, I think is a very good example. I had a few other, you know, kind of examples along that line, you know, the idea of um, maybe distinguishing between knowledge that something is true or false. And again, you have that equal and opposite kind of, you know, either something is true or it's false and true and false are equal and opposites, right? Um, so maybe distinction between knowledge that something is either true or false and distinguishing it for knowledge from knowledge of why something is true or false. And I'm just wondering if, if we can talk about a distinction between those two types of knowledge and maybe how that difference uh, applies to, to science. So, you know, for example, it's known that uh, all atoms except hydrogen have a neutron in it. So hydrogen is the only element that doesn't have uh, a neutron in it. Okay, so we know that is the case. But do we know why that's the case? Is, or is the question why something really of a different nature than the question of is it true or false, right? So that's kind of what I was getting towards with the, the question of whether it's possible uh, whether it's possible to have knowledge of all knowledge, including of that which is not knowledge. Um, you know, maybe another example is, uh, you know, that we know that it is a fact that the instant a collapsing, a collapsing star forges iron and the, the great pressure that's building up in the collapsing star, we know that the instant that it forges iron, and iron has 26 protons, 26 electrons, and 26 neutrons, 
that a supernova explosion occurs. We know that's a fact, but do we do we know why? You know, is the question why different from the question that? Um, and I think maybe that's kind of that's kind of maybe one of the the, the themes that that Plato's trying to get us to explore, maybe with the Carmides. What do we think of the the idea? There's a really compelling um, statement that Socrates makes, or I found it compelling, um, at 174a in the Carmides. And at 174a, Socrates imagine, or asks us to imagine, quote, the sort of man who, in addition to the future, knows everything that has been and is now, and is ignorant of nothing. Of this man, I think you would say that there was no one living who was more scientific. And so maybe as we explore the definition of science, what do you think of that statement? Is that true? I mean, if somebody, if, if a scientist were to, were to discover knowledge of everything, you know, say it's a grand unifying theory of physics. And, and certainly I, th I think many scientists, including Albert Einstein, um, you know, search, have searched all their lives for a grand unifying theory of everything. So what if, um, what if a scientist were to discover knowledge of everything? And so this, this person would know, uh, would be ignorant of nothing, uh, would know uh, everything that exists in the present and, and everything that was going to happen in the future. So first of all, is the question that, or, or is the statement that Socrates uh, makes that uh, of this man, I think he would say that there was no one living who was more scientific is that a, is that a is that the way we define science knowledge of all facts just wondering what you think of that definition and then maybe we can explore the idea of well what what would such knowledge do to such a person imagine if you possessed that that knowledge that knowledge of everything that exists in the present and everything that will exist in the future you are ignorant of nothing imagine what it would be like if you possessed that knowledge Let's explore that definition of science, maybe. Is that how we define science? JK? Yeah, if you, uh, if you were to know everything and you, um, you, know, you wouldn't really have a, 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 um, any, any kind of free will because since you could predict or you know, you know everything, there's, there's no need for free, free will. You'd be like just supercomputer that uh, that are just uh, totalitarian takes over all of everything, including your free free will. Um, so I don't know if uh, if uh, if the sense of meaning um, must depend on one's free will and the idea of of unpredictability. Um, so there's that, that one element of it. And, um, and it, it seems to that kind of, uh, you know, known everything, past and future, means that you'd have to deny the, the, the uh, fact of, of change and becoming. So it'd be, it's, uh, you know, Parmenides, uh, it would be, you know, Parmenides' dream come true. And then you'd have uh, Zeno being able to prove that there is no motion. And the paradox of um, not uh, ever being able to get anywhere at all in space and time. Um, so I don't know if uh, 
So if one could be happy about that kind of life where we'd be stuck in a static, uh, a static uh, universe, static existence, you know, and uh, how that would affect one's um, emotional well-being. Yeah, interesting comments that you make there, certainly in this this idea of free will, or maybe, you know, I was thinking maybe the word agency, as you were saying that, uh, you know, would you actually, would you actually be an agent in your own life? Could you actually affect change if, if you were everything, like, there was no change to be had, because you knew everything that was going to happen. So what can you change when you know everything? And And what would you feel if you were such a being that had discovered you know, the secrets to the universe, you know, if science had led you to the secrets of the universe, would you be happy or is happiness something maybe that would escape you? A fascinating question. Um, we have uh, Moshe and then Joel. Moshe? I'm very uncertain about the use of the term science. I think you raised that question yourself. Uh, certainly we've seen um, <clears throat> since the... Uh, since the beginning of, of, uh, of the modern of modern philosophy, and maybe even a little bit before that, uh, natural philosophy, uh, as we used to call it, has uh, peeled off uh, into individual sciences, one after another after another. And uh, the more things that uh, we come across um, um, empirically that we discover uh, theoretically and that we can go and pursue uh, through some sort of uh, uh, empirical method, becomes a new uh, a new science. Uh, you know, you have you know first you were studying you, you studied biology and then you studied the human body and then you studied the genome and then you found messenger RNA and all of these become more and more specialized sciences. And in science, you don't know everything past and future. Uh, you have a useful model for making predictions. And, and for providing um, uh, a structure to test, and if it works, you keep that model. If it doesn't, you, you, um, um, uh, you abandon it. So I don't think um, that, uh, I, I, I don't think that what they mean by science here is what we mean by science. Okay? And I was just trying to take a look in my Loeb translation of the Carmides, and if I remember correctly, uh, Socrates was referring to knowledge, uh, referring to science as knowledge, uh, as opposed to as opposed to doxa. And uh, that being the case, if we have uh, if we do have knowledge of something, uh, I think he's leading us down uh, sort of a garden path here when he's suggesting that knowledge will be not knowledge of all the past and all the future. I mean, in in, in I don't think he's Leibniz. You know where the monad, you know, knows everything. Uh, so I, I think he's sort of, I think he's sort of teasing us here. He doesn't mean by science. Certainly, what we mean by science. And uh, I don't think that even in his time, uh, uh, true knowledge as opposed to opinion could give you knowledge of the future and the past. Thank you. It's um, you know you raised a, a number of important points in in what you. Um, in what you said, and uh, you know, I just wanted to pick up on maybe two of those things before we go to Joel. And you know, one thing you talked about was the branches of of science. And so, you know, I, I'm seeing this picture of a tree, 
And, you know, one branch might be physics, one branch might be biology, another branch might be mathematics. But, you know, do all of the branches in the tree have to necessarily tie to a single root? Uh, and maybe that's one of the questions that I'm kind of seeing in my head as a picture from the words in, in this dialogue is that, you know, individual branches of knowledge need to then tie to something for them to be considered knowledge. And so maybe that's maybe one of this, the, the key questions about science and the definition of science. So the, this idea of the branches and the root of can knowledge. I, and add something to that? Sure. There are, you have a great picture of a tree, okay? Um, I'm sorry, I'm not as graphically um, uh, astute as I could be, but uh, do you know what a banyan tree is? Yeah. It drops individual roots, okay? So on that model of science as a, as a tree, the branches, although they started with the original plant, dropped their own roots. And I'm suggesting that as an alternate, as an alternate metaphor, just to think of yeah, well, th thank you. No, and that that's actually a very good, uh, a very good point. I mean, the other the other point that you made was this discussion of empirical evidence, and so uh, I would go back, you know, to Timaeus twenty eight a, where um, Plato made that distinction between understanding using sensory data, which would be maybe empirical evidence, um, and that understanding is applied to the realm that is becoming but never is versus an understanding of the realm of that which is, but never becomes, which requires a reasoned account. And so uh, maybe in terms of our knowledge of science, when do we apply the reasoned account versus when do we apply the empirical evidence? So I just wanted to pick up on that point that you raised about empirical evidence, uh, Moshe. So thank you very much. And then we'll go to Joel. Joel? Hey, guys. So uh, I'm trying to figure out which question I want to grab onto. Um, but I remember uh, a, a few questions that got brought up reminded me of a book I read last year by Sean Carroll, The Big Picture. And there was a really cool old thought experiment that he reminded me of. I think, I believe it was called uh, uh, Laplace's Demon. And that, that was, it went something along the lines of like, imagine if there was a, an invisible demon that like had all the knowledge and power in the world and was like, screwing with your existence either making things horrible for you or better off and if that if that demon existed how how would you know how would you find out so to speak so that was that's that's a really um really fun thought experiment to wrestle with but i want i also want to tie that with what uh, jk said too with um uh, how how does free will tie into the idea of having all like all uh, unlimited knowledge, if you will, if you just had a theory for everything or a fact that fit into everything, you would, I feel like it, it would essentially eliminate the, uh, the idea of free will. Cause if, if you, if, if you had, if you had an answer to every question and you knew everything and it, and it all boiled down to a fact or a formula, I feel like you would be about as free as a calculator is free from mathematics. Like there just there wouldn't be a choice at that point. It would just be static, if you will. So, um, and and then finally, James's question to what's the difference between uh, knowledge versus non-knowledge? Uh, like, isn't isn't that the the whole point of the scientific method is 
to literally take an idea and to just discredit it, to just throw to to try to disprove it, if you will. And if it holds up against scrutiny, if it makes predictions, then then that that becomes an empirical observation of reality, if you will. But I thought the whole point was to like essentially, you know, disprove any theory, if you will, going from a priori to a posterior. And uh, yeah, that I, that's my only take on it. Well, thank you, Joel. And I, I love that uh, that line that you use, that you would be as free as a calculator is free of mathematics. I think that's a, a wonderful analogy that, uh, you know, maybe demonstrates the constraints of full knowledge. Um, but, you know, I think you also raise the, the point of this demon that could make us doubt. And it makes me think of uh, Descartes' uh, wonderful discourse on the method and, uh, and um you know, th this idea is, you know, there is a lot of doubt in the world. And, you know, if you know something, uh, can you reduce that doubt down to the very point, which the last thing you need, that you cannot doubt is that you're having the thoughts. And so is there something that is not doubtable uh, in, in this idea of understanding one's own soul, which maybe connects to the idea of, of uh, the Carmides in terms of, um, you know the the idea that that Socrates presents uh, that uh, temperance or self control is a science of self, and I wanted to get into that maybe in our discussion as well today. So, so thank you for those uh, for those points, and then we'll go to uh, Moisha and then Donald. Moisha, there there are two things. One, I want to remind us all of uh, Dostoevsky's. Uh, when he uh, is talking in, in The Idiot about my most advantageous advantage, which is to do something completely contrary to what is either good good for me, either good or good for me. Uh, human beings are not calculators, even if they know uh, everything. And if we want to go to the ancients, uh, in terms of ethics, in the Nicomachean ethics, uh, Aristotle and and Plato or Socrates have divergent views of how you uh, of how you uh, how good takes purchase on the individual, because to Socrates, if you know what the right thing is to do, then you do the right thing. But on Aristotle's account, you have to complete the practical syllogism of knowing the right thing, being able to examine what um, your particular action is going to be now. And making the the connection between you know uh, the major and the minor premise, and he talks about the incontinent man as a person who knows what is the right thing to do in this particular situation, but cannot make that cannot make that um, that connection. So even though he knows everything, you can still do otherwise. Well, thank you. It's um, yeah, and I'm thinking maybe you know there, there's. A point here that we're making that if you know something to be true, then do you also know that it what is not true, which is the opposite of truth? You know, is 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 knowing that something is, um, you know, equal to knowing that something is not? Um, and I'm wondering, you know, there's a um, I think somebody, I think maybe it was J.K. mentioned Zeno's paradoxes, and there's a passage at 168c uh, in the Carmides, um, which is a great passage. And if there's anybody mathematically inclined in this group, I'd love to 
to talk about that uh, passage here. Um, you know, but it's this idea that, you know, if, if you had all encompassing knowledge, which would be knowledge, not just of the individual branches, but of the root of all knowledge, um, there's that wonderful passage at 168c, uh, which where Socrates gets a little bit mathematical and says that anything that was the double of the other doubles and of itself, I suppose, uh, behalf of itself and of the other doubles, because I don't suppose there is a double of anything except a half. And so it's a really interesting kind of conversation there about, you know, if you can divide knowledge into two continuously and then continuously double it, um, you know, do you ever know what is not knowledge? You, you're always trapped in knowing what is knowledge, but do you know also what is not knowledge? And I'm wondering if that theme is what Plato is maybe picking up on, the, on those references to the Oracle at Delphi and what, and what the Oracle said about Socrates. It's not just about knowing that something is, it's also knowing that something is not. Um, so, sorry, I've talked a little bit longer than I intended on that one, but uh, we'll go to Donald. Donald? I, I think in the Carmides, there's this knowing and not knowing or, or whatever. But as you hinted at the beginning of your remarks, knowledge, while we would say it's good in itself, Socrates certainly here is pushing that there is also the use, these, these, this knowledge is to make us happy. It is to let us choose wisely or whatever we term we want to do that. It is not just to know how the universe works or something like that. In, in fact, while not here, I think we'll, from what you've said, we'll take up where Socrates turns away from natural philosophy and said he's only interested in things that affect his ethical life, his, his ability to do good, to do something. And he tends to talk about like the science of medicine. It's not that it's interesting because it teaches us knowledge of the body. It brings us health something that we experience in our own lives as a good. And to tell you, I mean, I get kind of lost in a lot of these syllogisms, but I, I think these, this theme that knowledge is not just knowing for the sake of knowing comes across pretty clear. That temperance is, if it's a knowledge, it's, it's a knowledge of how to pick and choose and use other types of knowledge to make better pots, to make healthier people, to choose wisely. Thank you. I, you actually, I really like the way you put that, you know, this idea of picking and choosing knowledge, because there's so many different pieces of knowledge that we have, especially now in what we call the information age that we live in. You know, we're surrounded by knowledge or discrete sets of facts but how do we pick and choose which facts are best for us you know that that wonderful um use or reference you made to to health which socrates talks about in this dialogue he, he talks about it in a lot of dialogues this idea of understanding health what is what is actually healthy you know and and when you have all of uh, different facts that you can choose from which facts are going to make you the healthiest both in your own 
you know, uh, in your mind as well as in your body, which are really, you know, part of a, a combined mechanism that, that makes up you. Um, and so, yeah, and I, I just, the other point that you, you raised, you know, was this idea of good. And so just before we go to JK, I just wanted to read uh, a little piece from 174C of the Carmides. It really picks up on the question that Brian Cox asked in that opening video that we looked at, uh, but also the question that Socrates, uh, or this imagination that Socrates presents of, of the, the, the perfectly scientific person who would know everything. Uh, and at 174C, Socrates says, maybe it would be discovered that it was not living scientifically that was that was making us fare well and be happy even if we possessed all the sciences put together but that we have to have this one science of good and evil and so you can possess all of the knowledge in in the universe um, socrates is saying but maybe the thing that really makes us happy is to understand what divides good from evil and i found that a very powerful Statement. So I just wanted to bring that in because you mentioned good, and I thought that was a very uh, good way to to relate that particular passage. So I'll, I'll just go to J.K. at this point. J.K. Yeah. So uh, what I think is being pointed out is that there's a conflict between uh, knowledge and um, and the will. You know, uh, you know what makes us really happy may not uh, just depend on knowledge. Um, we have, you know, we, there's been a tendency to, to rely on our, our reason to, the, you know, our reason, which is how we understand how to do things, which is the, the foundation of our knowledge, to decide what is good and what is evil. And that, um, that conflicts with, um, with maybe the will, which is, um, which is not, uh, you know, um, which is uh, does not uh, always depend on knowledge um, for one's hap uh, for the individual's happiness. You know that somehow the the will uh, has to um, you know has its own uh, you know way of uh, of finding its own hap happiness. You know. Um, so maybe there, there's something there about, you know, someone mentioned Dostoevsky and so forth, and that it, it, it doesn't matter what you, uh, how much you know or, 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 or what you know to be good, but um, you could just go, you know, just the, the, the will can just uh, decide to go against that. And so there's something, you know, there's the, there's the will that, uh, that may, may be the arbiter of what, um, you know, you know, what is good and evil. Interesting. And, and I think you use the word reason in there as well. And it just makes me think that, um, you know, the, the will, you know, maybe relies on an account of the reasons why. So that reasoned account that, uh, that Plato talks about again at, at time as 28a, you know, you need to use a reasoned account. It, it said in order to understand the eternal state of, that which is but never becomes um and so you know i think that's that's an important part you know again that i just have this picture of this perfect being who knows everything and that perfect being is surrounded by others like me who have imperfections 
you know, I'll be the first to admit to my imperfections. Would would a perfect being who has perfect knowledge, like, like, there's nothing that this perfect being doesn't know, would this perfect being be happy surrounded by imperfect beings such as me? I don't know. I, I, I don't see happiness in that. And, and so, but I, I find the statement that Socrates makes about this knowledge of good and evil to be kind of rather profound. Um, we'll go, CJK, you have your hand up again. Let, let's just go back to uh, Donald and then, um, and then we'll go back to JK. Donald? Well, from what I read in the Carmides, the science of good and evil. It's not necessarily the, some knowledge of something external. This, it starts, he, he, Socrates kind of glances off of know thyself. It's the, it's the knowledge of what's beneficial to us, and we might say redundantly what's truly beneficial to us, that allows us to make those judgments as to what is good and evil. In, in this sense, I always feel like there's, there's so much in Plato of the ideas, but when I talk like this, it's like I wanna make him an existentialist or something like that. <laughs> that. That we're not born with some rational knowledge of human nature. Human nature is something that becomes in the world, it's not one of those is's, it's one of those things that always becomes. And that we have to learn, that means through another trite phrase, the examined life. Not the examining life, not the going around and annoying other people, but having other people perhaps annoy us and helping us examine our life to learn human nature so that we can use knowledge to provide benefit. I mean, we're not worried about, in a sense, providing benefit to rocks and rivers and tree, things in the natural world. We're, we're just we're just talking about when we're talking ethically, we're largely just talking about ourselves. And and you know, I think I think in a way here, Socrates is sort of taunting Critias and Carmides that they've they've heard these discussions and they want to present them but they don't understand the internal logic that holds them together because they haven't done the know thyself, the examined life, and therefore have no knowledge of benefit and then no knowledge of good and evil. And they just wander around somewhat uh, unenlightened. That's way too much talking. <laughs> no, not at all. You you raised so many good points there that uh, you know. I just I wanted to just pick up on on them. We've we've got a good speakers list. Uh, we've got J.K. Jane and then Moisha. But just before we go to to J.K. Uh, and then to Jane, um, 
you said, Donald, you know, that this idea be between in this distinction you made between internal logic and external references. And I just wanted to point out, you know, at the beginning of the Carmody's, um, uh, Critias presents five different propositions on what temperance or self-control is. Uh, and he starts kind of with external references, you know, temperance is being quiet, you know, because you don't want to bother other people. And, you know, so that's kind of this reference of yourself to the other people that you would be bothering if you weren't quiet. And so Socrates takes them through those different propositions and explores them and realizes that they don't apply in all cases. Um, and so they, so Critias arrives at his fifth proposition at 164D um, about temperance as follows, and quote, as a matter of fact, this is pretty much what I say temperance is, to know oneself. Uh, and I agree with the inscription to this effect set up at Delphi. So again, those that reference to what the oracle said about Socrates and not knowing not just what you know, but what you don't know. Uh, and so, Donald, you raised also the point of, of knowing self. Uh, and I just wondered what people think about whether self is a fixed quantity over time or is self something that is always becoming. Uh, I, I like the way that you that you said that. So and that's a, the point, I th a very important point, I think, that we should explore in this. And the idea that you talked about, uh, you know, this idea of the unexamined life is not worth living, which is a very important statement that uh, that Plato makes elsewhere. So a number of very key points that, that you raised here. So let's explore those and uh, uh, any other thoughts that people have. So we'll go to JK and then to Jane and then Moisha. JK? Yeah, I want to pick up on that idea that Donald's uh, idea of, uh, of uh, becoming and the uh, unexamined life. So so maybe the um, it's the idea of um, examining life because our uh, lives are always becoming change changing. And it, it's the reason why uh, you know some great philosophers like Hegel and and Freud uh, posited a um, the um, death you know drive or the thanatos, the death uh, instinct. Uh, and um, it's it's it really death doesn't mean being uh, you know uh, a total end of life, but it's a process that occurs in every every aspect of life because we're always changing. Every time you wash your hands, you're you're shedding dead skin and so forth. But you know, uh, just think of a growth of a of a of a uh, you know a baby so forth, and baby's always changing. And um, and as the as the baby grows grows uh, you know into adult, he's already he's shedding his uh, the life of his youth. And just like any plant that grows on a bud, you know, the bud is is left behind as being dead in order for it to flower. Or the caterpillar, you know, becoming a, a um, butterfly as, um, and, you know, the caterpillar dies in order for the butterfly to to uh, emerge. So um, so the, the the idea of the death instinct, I think, is in, very important in the, in the whole understanding of... Um, our life as as a becoming and not as just a being you know we become we become beings that constantly become so uh so i kind of like that idea of becoming and and tied in with the the uh really kind of like um morbid sounding idea of the death um death instinct or we are sonatos the greeks had because without one you can't have the other right so so, uh, so knowledge is sometimes stuck in these paradigms 
of under, of uh, self-understanding. And these paradigms change right, with each period of scientific understanding. And so I, so I like that idea of a, one paradigm dies in order for another paradigm to emerge and leading to our, our you know, better understanding of ourselves. But it's never static. It's, you know, if it becomes static, it becomes a dogma, a doxa. Interesting. You, you raised uh, a number of good points there. You know, certainly this idea, you know, without death, there wouldn't be any becoming. And, you know, it makes me again think about that. Maybe that poor, unfortunate scientist who discovers everything and becomes, you know, this being with perfect knowledge, then is there any more becoming at that point? Um, and then for the rest of us, is this idea of self something that's always uh, changing or is self something that's kind of fixed at birth and you're kind of stuck with yourself for, for your life? You know, that's, uh, I think, an important point that would be worth exploring here. And, and you know, as you put it at the end, you know, it, um, you know, does the paradigm always change? Is, is the paradigm of self fixed? And, and this idea that, that's presented in Carmody's as temperance being the science of self you know, where, where do we explore the science of self? Where is the science of self in schools today? Um, anyway, we'll go from here to Jane. Jane, welcome. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm going to be, I'm going to try to be as concise as possible. Don't know if that's going to happen or not. But um, first point is uh, this, this idea has been mentioned a couple of times that having sort of this um, ultimate knowledge of everything, the past, the present, the future would mean that there is no free will. So doesn't that basically lead us to the thought that the sort of the conception of free will is erroneous because it only means that we are missing and lacking of certain kinds of knowledge. And if we were ever to find that knowledge, then we would realize that there is no such thing as free will. And from that, if, if, if we go to the dichotomy of order and chaos, uh, I guess ultimate knowledge, if, if it can be termed that way, is sort of ultimate order and it's chaos that gives us this variability and this and this erroneous conception of free will. Uh, to continue, second point about the self, um, I was just thinking about what what um, what JK was saying, and it seemed to me that if if we're using the logic in, in this dialogue and in other dialogues um, about the same and the other, that which is becoming and that which is, it seems the person, while he's alive, he's always becoming. And for like a, a regular person, the state of being is actually the state of death. You cannot be becoming in death, you just are. And, and then you have this very short lifespan in the course of which you are always becoming, as, as JK mentioned, you're, you're always sort of changing or shedding, developing or whatever. And then you reach this certain point when you stop becoming and you just always are. And this would lead me to the next point of, the, it's not possible, according to the logic that we see in the dialogues, it's not possible for like uh, for like a mortal person to gain that type of knowledge, because from what I understood in the Timaeus, the the self could be considered as the soul, 
and the soul is that which sort of binds the idea which is the eternal the 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 is and what is becoming what is always changing so sort of like the shadow of the i guess the ideas of plato and so the self it it can kind of reach out to get some of that a piece of that i guess ultimate knowledge but we can never really get it while we're mortal at least that's that's the sort of logic that i see in what socrates is saying and to answer the question of um happiness and can can we can we get it through knowledge i mean it would seem that if 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 science could give us happiness then the smarter so the, the more knowledgeable a person is the happier they would be but this is I, I i'm not sure if there's like a correlation if there's like any studies that show a correlation but based on on what i've seen that that's not the case you can you can know a lot but still be a a very unhappy person and the opposite is true and then we have things that make us happy and or that should make us happy but they don't and and why is that that i guess that sort of bounces back to what um james mentioned of like we understand that something happens but we don't know why exactly that is uh, that's it thank you well thank you and and um you know you touched on the the idea of of death and death is a state of maybe eternal is uh so it's not a state of becoming anymore but it it kind of enters the state that always is and no longer becomes and it made me think of that opening scene of the the Brian Cox video that we saw at the beginning of this episode um you know where he points out that even though those people that the the people in the Philippines went to to see their ancestors um even though they're no longer physically living their souls or their memories of their souls um have this continuing effect on these people you know it's brought them out to the cemetery it's brought them out to celebrate those memories and so maybe maybe even though we call it death physically uh it's not death in terms of memory and and so the soul you know continues to exist in the realm that is but never becomes in you know, the physical realm is the realm that is always becoming um but the the realm that is no longer becomes uh but you know the realm that is you know could encompass those who have died physically so it's uh i think that's an interesting distinction that you made and you you also talked about the state of variability that we exist in while we're living you know this this variability of the self and uh um so maybe a, a reason why temperance which is you know one of the, the prime subjects of this dialogue is is necessary this idea of self control and and what is it that we're controlling when we're trying to control the self um we'll go to Moisha and Joel Moisha okay um this dialogue we're having is certainly heady um the, i take it that the that the when you read this the uh read the comedies from the beginning to the end uh we find out that we do not have we we cannot uh uh define the science of temperance uh we go through a bunch of arguments uh for what temperance is and what temperance is and, and at the end Socrates says well you know we've discussed all this but we still don't uh we still don't know what it is that being said uh socrates is regarded 
to have always made good decisions. To uh, if you take a look at the apology, he's he's going to um, uh, he's going to uh, be murdered by the state because the state has has rightfully uh, convicted him um, of a crime. Uh, and he's made these decisions not because he knew what to do, uh, but because he admittedly doesn't know what to do, but he has a dam on that always stops him in the end, starts him in the right direction. And he can't quite explain this. He can't quite put this into words, but he, he says several times in different dialogues that he has this dam on that, you know, that, that gets him to go in, in, into the right directions. So... I think that the the idea of a science of temperance uh, is uh, is impossible. Um, that's number one. The second thing is is knowing yourself. Well, you raised the question, James. What is the self? And the self um, it, that can be known is not our private emotions uh, or thoughts, but it is our actions. And it is understanding our actions uh, that um, enables us to um, to live in the um, uh, to live in the present uh, to live in the Dorian mode. If you remember in the Lockies, you know the you know um, Nicias was saying you know well that a you know a, a good soldier he he has um, uh, he he stands his ground in battle, and uh, <laughs> when he introduces. Socrates to the other people, he says, you should have seen Socrates in the retreat from Delium. Okay, well, if standing your ground is the same thing as retreating, there's an impossibility there. So, so he doesn't know himself. His soul is not in, in the Dorian mode where his words and his actions are the same. So if we, what we're going to know of ourselves has to be in our actions and in our 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 understanding that our words, which we can examine, are are commensurate, are, are you know, are are, are 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 the same. Okay. The third thing um, is that um, uh, the, the third thing is is death is is not an eternal is death is an eternal not. When there's death, there's 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 nothing. And independent of any philosophical or theological arguments or discussions about um, about souls and, and eternal life and living, you know, living before uh, having knowledge before uh, your birth, which you recollect uh, in life under the proper circumstances, uh, there is no evidence of this. And uh, to the extent that we can make speculative arguments about this. That's all interesting and fine and good, but we can't say that that, that death is anything else but uh, but non-being. So those are my those are my three highlights. Thank you, and, and um, you know you touched on the idea of or, or the the question. You know when you said that the the discussion is heady. Uh, Let's take it into a practical direction as well. You know, there's there's no reason to keep the discussion on a theoretical level. I think maybe, you know, practically speaking, how does how does any one of us um, exercise self control? Uh, how does any one of us gain knowledge of self? Uh, and then practically speaking, how does the scientific world um, 
exercise temperance in their pursuit of knowledge and in their use of knowledge? Uh, and I think it's a very important question that, um, you know, we can't just leave in the um, realm of thought, you know, in the realm of philosophical thought, as important as it is, you know, we're at a point technologically in our advancement where I think we need to do, we do need to start thinking about how to apply this idea of temperance practically. Um, you know, and I've said before, quantum computing is a, an area that I uh, follow quite a bit, you know, both in terms of the physics and mathematics of it, but also in the philosophy of it. And there's great power, tremendous power uh, that is just around the corner in, in quantum computing. But, you know, I think some measure of control will be required with it. And I think a measure of self-control, especially for those developing the technology and the algorithms. Um, will be very important. And so I think it's a very timely discussion. That's why this dialogue struck me as so um, as so key, you know, at this particular point in time. And so um, so let's 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 explore the practicalities of, of temperance as well. Um, and and you know that that question again is, you know, when there's death, is there nothing? Um, I'm interested in hearing what everybody thinks about that. You know, certainly in the the opening scene where Brian Cox had, you know, took the camera to to the cemetery, um, there was memory. I, I'm seeing memory in that. So maybe there's nothing physical, but there's something that's maybe you know just using in the broadest sense of the word metaphysical. Um, so what do people think about that? So let's go to uh, to Joel and then J.K. Joel. So I'm going to take uh, the there there were two topics that were brought up on the idea of the self, and I recall there was also the question of good and evil. So I want to take a very ambitious approach and actually tackle uh, those for a second here. And before I jump into it, I want to state obviously that this is every definition I'm going to try to give is going to be an incomplete answer, but it's a personal answer that I too am trying to make sense of. So by all means, I'm open to be challenged and corrected on this if I step out of line here. But I really, uh, when it comes to questions of like, say, good and evil, for example, uh, dare I say, I say that's not maybe a scientific question. That is obviously an ethical question. It's a human question. Um, the, the idea of good, I like to think is how we talked about a lot today is the idea of knowledge and to know thyself and to uh, live in harmony with that, to accept that and live with within your means and, and, and to carry on through that forever progressive journey of knowing more and, you know, um, and, and complementing that process, if you will. So that still, again, that's a very sort of incomplete definition and, what I also like the uh, when people talk about evil, I always come back to a definition or a quote by Einstein saying um, he said he thinks there's only two things in uh, there's only two things in this world that are um, infinite, uh, either the universe or human stupidity, ignorance, if you will. So I like to think that what is evil is the lack of knowledge or not only just ignorance, but to, to know what you're doing is, it doesn't make any sense. I know, say, for example, this is going to hurt an innocent person and I have every reason not to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I like to think what is just simply evil is to have the, the awareness 
or the knowledge to do so or not to do so, but do it anyway. Um, so that's number one. And number two of uh, this, this idea of the self, it is such a, it's, it's such a fun paradox when I think about it. It's like, it's like when you really sit down alone and have a very intimate, uh, you, you pose that challenge to yourself saying, what, what am I exactly? It's like, it's like, the idea of the self or I or the ego, it's very much like the shadow in the room that's that follows you everywhere, wherever you go. But whenever you actually stop and try to grab on to it or turn the light on, it disappears. I feel like that's what reflecting on the idea of I is, right? So um, I'm not quite sure what, like if, if, I, if I were to describe James in one word or in a sentence, you know, it's like you can't or yourself, you know, it's like every time you try to put a pin on it, it, it's it always feels incomplete and that and that never stops if you will so i think maybe like when it's all over and the question that was asked earlier about death is when you die that's it that that inner dialogue of constantly trying to define what you are ends but um but yeah, like I feel like that that there's still there's still parts of you that will live on forever in matter through your family through genetics. It's just that inner dialogue of constantly trying to define that very awkward sort of a very short-lived experience of just trying to figure out what you are, but you just dissolve into everything else, but that but there's but maybe it's a paradox. There is no such thing as I. So um I'm done. <laughs> wow, you you really uh really just kind of hit the mark on what I was thinking about quantum computing, you know, this in this problem in physics that we have with what's called the observer effect. So as soon as you observe uh, the scattering of photons, the scattering changes. So the act of observation actually changes the distribution of, of photons. And that's the famous double slit experiment that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, physicists still don't understand the reason why that happens. Um, but you put it in such a great analogy that as soon as you reflect on the nature of I, it changes. So it's this constantly, it is almost like that Zeno's paradox of that constantly changing. Uh, I'm thinking of it as almost like fractional dimensions of yourself. Every time you think of yourself, it creates another new fractional dimension of yourself. And so it's constantly getting away from you. Uh, I love that analogy that you used. Uh, and, and, and then you also mentioned the word incompleteness. And in the notes for the session that I posted on the shared drive, I, I did you know, mention Gödel's incompleteness theorem or theorems. Uh, and you know, it's something that I think we saw in the geometry of, uh, of the, the Mino when we looked at the Mino last time and the geometry that Socrates takes Mino's attendant through. Uh, kind of that diagonal argument process. And so again, you know, if there's anybody that's really interested in mathematics in this group, I'd be happy to to discuss that in uh, in greater detail. But uh, thank you. you. You really just, you hit on some points that I think are, are absolutely essential. And, and that question that you asked at the end, is I really something that exists? Um, so we'll go to JK. JK? Yeah, I'd like to um, draw on that uh point uh, of the self, you know, uh, because we usually think of ourselves as a singularity, but then once you think about yourself as a singularity, you, you, you realize that, um, that you're a determined uh, singularity, 
And that leads to the idea that you were, we're not just a, a singularity, but we're part of a collective. And so <clears throat> we're also uh, a, uh, uh, determined by uh, what came before us, uh, the idea of uh, Plato's idea of recollection. You know, so we are, you know, a composite of so many other, you know, dimensions of, uh, of the world and of existence that, uh, you know, do we really have uh, free will? You know, you come, you, 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 you kind of like, uh, you know, think of, well, if we're, we're so much determined by all these uh, forces, you know, inside, within us and outside of us, um, you know, do we really have free will? Maybe we, we don't. We're just destined to, to be whatever uh, we're destined to be. And um, so the self would be something that is part of the, the whole. And the, and the whole would be, you know, um, our, uh, you know, maybe existential being, which is constantly in a state of flux. And that um, we're constantly changing. And even after death, the ultimate death, uh, we don't know what comes after that. Is it being or, or continuous or continuous state of, um, you know, becoming? Um, so I don't know. The, you know, Nietzsche had the idea of eternal return, eternal return of, of the same. Uh, probably not. Because becoming is what uh, Heraclitus said, we can't, cannot uh, step into the same river twice. So it's, it has to be something different. So maybe it's the eternal return of difference. Um, so, you know, the, 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 I think the whole idea of the self is really in flux and, um, and in a state of change. So I don't know. So the, so when you come to ex, uh, examining your life, you're, you're not, you're never, you know, reach a point of having to examine life, but you're examining constantly what that uh, what that is, and it's never complete, which is what uh, what you just, uh, you know, James and and uh, Joe was just mentioned. What you said, uh, J.K. about uh, same and different, you uh, really again makes me think of Tainas, where you know the the creator mixes the same and the different, and applies this bond to it. And uh, you know, I think this bond maybe is the soul that uh, that Plato keeps talking about and exploring in Phaedo and and elsewhere, and it, it appears in almost all the dialogues, right? So this idea of this blending of same and different, and I think that's such a powerful idea that that we have the capacity to be same or different. And so maybe that's the free will is our choice between being same and different. What do people think about that idea? You know, we, we've talked about free will a number of times here. Is our choice, you know, to be the same or to be different? And is that a powerful choice? And again, not to forget the practicalities of all of this, you know, words are words, but, you know, we're at a point in time where we are developing tremendous technology and. Um, you know, to quote the uh, philosophical Stan Lee, with tremendous power comes tremendous uh, responsibility. And so, um, where do where does this tremendous responsibility? How is it exercised? You know, we can read words of a philosopher and geometer Plato, who's been dead for maybe twenty four hundred years, 
Um, and that's all fine and well, but how do we apply these words in practice in today's world? If, if we think that temperance is science of self, how do we, how do we apply the science of self and how do the scientists apply the science of self? And maybe I'll just ask the question in terms of, you know, the scientists who are developing quantum algorithms, how do they decide what is a good algorithm and what's an evil algorithm? You know, is that a question that we need to explore, you know, as we go back to this idea of distinction between good and evil? I'll take it to Moisha at this point. Moisha? Okay, James, to, to address your, uh, your your point about good algorithms or, or, or evil algorithms, uh, uh, when a scientist or a coder is, is writing code or solving a problem, I, I don't believe that they're looking for... Uh, they're certainly not looking for uh, for either good or evil. Uh, they're looking for something that solves the problem uh, that they are, are are trying to address. And from a practical standpoint, that leads to uh, all sort of practical meaning meaning um, sociologically, culturally. That leads to a lot of problems, you know, because we can do something in science. It doesn't mean that the science has led us in in the right direction. Okay. Uh, I, I, you know, the the tremendous work that that has been done in the United States and around the world on on atomic radiation, you know, built the bomb and, and you know, it's it's changed the world. Uh, that science, which when it was being pursued, uh, you know, for pure research purposes, uh, was heady and exciting. Uh, who knew what would happen to it after the politicians got a hold of it and decided, oh, well, we can release this force and it'll kill a whole, you know a whole ton of people. Um, so I, I, you know, I don't think there's such a thing as a, a, as a good algorithm or a bad algorithm. There's just a practical algorithm that is going to, that is going to solve the, uh, either solve or not solve the, the, the problem at hand. Um, about this death, again, um, death and life uh, are, are contraries. Uh, if we put a logical spin on that, I would like to talk about, um, about death as not life. And if life uh, is becoming, death is not becoming anymore, but it's not is, it's not live, it's not life, it's, it's, it's not life. I mean, it's not life, it's not life. And that's, that's it's, it's like deep, from our, you know, when I see a, a dog dead in the street or, you know, another human being is, is dead and I, I realize that, you know, that they're, 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 their brief light has gone out and they're, you know, and they're dead. There's no thoughts there. And, and addressing your idea earlier, I, I did, I, um, I missed the film at the beginning, but you mentioned several times that in the Cox film, uh, you've talked about memory being present. Um, in Mexico, they have a, a, a Dia de los Muertos, which is, is close to uh, Halloween. And uh, the families go out and decorate the tombs, and they bring uh, uh, they bring the you know uh, the persons their favorite food, their favorite liquor, and flowers and things like that. And, and cities are all lit up, and there are great celebrations about it. But those memories are the memories of the living. The dead don't have any memories. The dead are not living, and only living creatures have memories. So I just want to point out what I take to be an equivocation on the idea of memory. Because it applies certainly to the people who are living, but not to the 
not to the uh, not to the non-living. And um, I, I also want to point out this thing about the examined life, or at least my take on it. Um, Socrates, you know, says, and the oracle says, you know, that the examined life is is not worth living. But it doesn't follow from the fact that you have examined your life that you're living a good life. You could be a perfectly miserable person and, and examine your life. In fact, you could be a completely wicked person and examine your life. And uh, being a wicked person and having an examined life, Socrates would probably be forced to say, although I don't understand how that's possible, um, you're right. Uh, an examined life doesn't lead to a, a moral life or, or, or a virtuous life. That's certainly a, an, an interesting point. And in the um, you know the point that you made about the Day of the Dead in Mexico, I think, is very similar to what they were celebrating in the Philippines. Uh, in the Brian Cox uh, video, um, in this idea that um, you know, while while the dead don't appear to have any memory, or at least any memories that we can see, you know, the idea is that the memories of of the dead affect the actions of the living. Um, so I think that was the point that Brian was making. Certainly, the point that you made, Moisha, in terms of you know, there is an obvious difference between death and life. You know the difference is obvious, uh, and and I think it's something worth understanding. Yes, I mean that's that certainly seems to be the case. The the actual it's an interesting the the title of that Brian Cox episode. It was from his Wonders of Life series, and the actual title is What Is Life. So if we know that death is not life, then maybe the question is what is life, and then maybe we get into this paradoxical kind of infinitely recursive question. So it's. Uh, uh, interesting to to explore that. Uh, so thank you for those comments, and uh, I just wanted to um, I just wanted to recall. You know, Joel mentioned uh, Einstein and the quote of Einstein's. There's a quote of Einstein's that uh, I used in the posting for this meetup, and I just wanted to recall everybody about it or, or remember, remind people of it because it really does relate, I think, to the idea that um, knowing that something is also maybe necessarily requires knowing what it is not. And so that quote of, of Einstein that's posted on the, uh, the notice for the session, Einstein says, as our circle of knowledge expands, so does the circumference of darkness surrounding it. So as the circle of knowledge expands, so, so does the circumference of that which is not knowledge surrounding it. And I thought that was very relevant to what, uh, what was being said in this dialogue. So I just wanted to remind people of that. Um, we'll go to Jane and then to Donald. Jane? Um, just a couple of notes on what was said a little earlier about the same and the other. I think, and when reading the Timaeus, I sort of saw a beginning of like the dialectical con conception being put into the same and to the other and it being fused by the essence. And even a person we can't really choose to be the same and the other because we are always in a way the same and the other. Like for example, we're having this dialogue and then the the, the kind of person we were before and the, and the kind of person that we're gonna be after, I would say that you're gonna change a little bit, right? You're, you have this exchange of ideas and in a sense, you're gonna be a little bit different than the way that you were just like 
two hours before. And this goes for anything that we do in life. We're sort of, we are the same, but we are always becoming the other because we're getting these new experiences, new thoughts, um, doing, I don't know, new actions or whatever. And we're sort of always becoming the other. So we are always sort of the other, we're always becoming, but we still have, the, I guess, the self, the same in us. And um, a second thing I wanted to mention about temperance in science. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm from the soft sciences, so there's, uh, so I'm not really good with like all the strict terminology or, or, or whatever, but um, I've spoken to a few people who work with machine learning and from, from what I've heard from their experience and from the few articles that I've read, it seems like there's definitely no temperance or, or very, very small amount of temperance being practiced in machine learning because basically they, they create like uh, algo algorithms that live a life of their own. And basically it's very hard to control what's going on. And if some sort of issue pops up, it's very hard to figure out why this or that happened. And in terms of like practicality, I think this happened with the brand of cars by Toyota. They had, they, they made these um, autopilot cars and they ended up crashing. So they, they would get into accidents and they, they basically took like a, a group of specialists to like look through all the, all the, all the information that there is and figure out why this happened. And it took like six or eight months for them to just say, well, there's like practically like a hundred different things that could have gone wrong. And so that's that. And they just had to like scrap the cars and that's it. So, and I think this says a lot about where we're going with, with like our scientific approach, I guess, as, as, as humans in general. And if this is happening on very small and simple, relatively simple things, I'm, I'm even kind of scared to think what's going on on the higher, more complex levels. Um, that, that's all I wanted to mention. Thank you. Thank you. The, um, I think the, the, the point about the Toyota it reminds me of a, an article I read in the Atlantic some years ago. And, and I think that might have been about the um, sticking accelerators that they had in the Toyota Corollas. And I think that was about me a dozen years ago um, where it turned out that in the Toyota Corolla at the time there was like 100 million lines of software code 100 million lines that had built up over the Corolla's product life which was something like you know 30 years at that point the, the car has been around for a long time and every time they make a change they add some new code to the existing code and so it wound up like at that point there was 100 million lines of software code and the article was making the point that it was really beyond the capacity of any individual engineer or even a collective of engineers to understand what exactly all of this code was doing. So they just put the car on the road, they tested it, and if it behaved like, um, like they thought it should, then they said oh, it was okay. Um, but there's a, a point in a really interesting uh, book that I read by computer scientist Hector Levesque um, called... Um, so I've just forgotten the title. The uh, the Turing test and the quest for real knowledge. I think is uh, is part of the title, and I apologize, I've forgotten about it. But um, Hector makes the point in the book that uh, the the things that we don't expect actually occur more often than we plan. So the unexpected actually occurs more often than expected. Um, 
And so that was maybe a good example of that. And certainly as we are developing quantum algorithms now, and we know that quantum physics involves entanglement so that one thing that's done somewhere, one action that's done somewhere will have a reaction somewhere else. And that's a guarantee of the universal properties of quantum physics. Um, so a very important point to understand in terms of quantum algorithms is, you know, where where do we understand the limits to our own knowledge to be? Um, and do we, do we really appreciate that which we don't know? Uh, and I think that's a, a point that uh, is really coming through very powerfully in this dialogue, uh, at least to my reading. So thank you for that. Um, Donald. Trying to make sure I'm not muting myself. Yeah. One of the things that uh, an old professor of mine in a Plato seminar said that Plato and Socrates, when they talk about sciences, it invariably leads back to medicine. And they have a particular fondness for medicine because it's normative. It has the concept of good health. Physics doesn't have like a concept of the universe is right ordered or it's disordered or something, you know, they, they lack this normative. And, and I think that's something that's kind of important to notice that you're not just, well, why is he always picking medicine? Well, because it has this concept, this normative concept of good health. And that, and that's different. And we've seen in the conversation here today or heard Modern sciences, as a rule, lack this normative core. And, and two, I think, I don't know, Moisha, but I think, I think I have to defend somewhat how examination of one's life leads to virtue. At least, at least how unexamination of one's life leads perhaps to unvirtue. That we have to have some self-knowledge to know whether the actions we're going to take harm us or hurt us in ourselves. And it's, that it's there we also get the insight into what our actions might do to others. You know, we, we're not, we don't, this, this knowledge, we don't find it under a rock or it's not written on a, we open a notebook and there it is. Here's, here's what selves are or human beings are. We have to learn that through our own living. And this examination process is what provides us both the, the knowledge of ourselves and of others to act in ways that are truly beneficial. In, in another platonic dialogue, I think there's a, an example of a wrestler who, who's so powerful, he can do whatever he wants. And the, the argument quickly runs amok because having this power to do anything doesn't get this wrestler anywhere because he doesn't know how to direct it. He do, and so he's as likely 
to use it for good or for evil or for benefit or for harm, however, whatever duality you want to use there. And it's this what the examination. And I don't know how we get that knowledge other than from us. We're both the, the, the observer and the observed, you know. And if we weren't self-conscious, I'm convinced there wouldn't be any ethics. There wouldn't be any discussions like this. We wouldn't wonder about what Socrates and Plato and were trying to teach us because it wouldn't make any difference. We couldn't know our own nature. And therefore, our choices would either be pre-programmed in our genetics or some random choice or something, but they wouldn't be ethical. That was a, a powerful comment that you made, Donald, you know, that we're, we are both observer and observed. And it really makes me recall what Joel said, you know, about the instant you try to think about what I is, I changes. Right. So once you start to observe yourself, you change. Right. And so it's maybe like this quantum observer effect that we've we've got some some, you know, continually evolving state, you know, and, and that what we do, we don't exist in a bubble. Anything we do affects somebody else some way, you know, even whether we're still alive or not, we still are affecting other people. Um, and so, you know, how do we judge our effect on others? Uh, very important question. So thank you. And, and uh, Moisha. Donald, thank you very much for the response. I, I want to, I, I, I apologize for nitpicking, but I'm a nitpicker. Um, the, uh, at Delphi uh, are two inscriptions. One is uh, examine life. And the other one is avoid excess. And while examining your life um, and avoiding excess are what's at Delphi, Plato has changed that. He, he makes a minor modification in it. And his modification is that an unexamined life is not a valuable life, is not worth living. Okay. He's not saying that an unexamined, that an examined life is a virtuous life. He's just saying that it's not a valuable life. So I, I want to point out, you know, the difference between what's being said at, at Delphi, which is to curb your your arete toward pleos, your drive toward glory, with um, by examining by examining your life. But Plato's making Plato's twisted it, and I think it's only fair to Plato for us to point out that 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 the value that a human being should have in his life comes from the examination of that life, but it doesn't follow from that, that he's, that he's a virtuous person, that he's a temperate person. And the other thing is, and so I thank you very much for that. The other thing that I wanna go back to is this thing that JK has brought up and James has brought up uh, about free will and knowledge. Um, and, um, you know, if, if, if you had a person who knew everything, okay? I'm trying to understand how, let's say that super knowledge, how I could deduce out of that, 
uh, that James and Donald and JK and all of you people would be dialoguing with me today. I mean, where does that, how do you make that deduction? Because if, if in fact that kind of thing were true, then we should be able to make the deduction how I didn't freely choose to come to this lecture, but somehow James was determined to bring this lecture to me. And if someone can make an attempt at clarifying that, I will be your acolyte. Wow, thank you. What, what a great question. It's, uh, what a great thought that brings to mind. You know, it's, uh, it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. I'm going to think about that more. Uh, and really, I learned so much in these dialogues, you know, and, and that question was a great piece of learning. And, and what was said uh, before, I think it was Donald, that you, you said medicine is normative. I hadn't thought of that before, but I keep reading Plato's dialogues and I keep seeing he brings in this idea of medicine. And I was trying to think, you know, what is the connection, obviously, you know, but maybe as, as you say, it is that idea that it is, fundamentally good um and uh that becomes the analogy that we you know reference good to at least in the physical realm so very important and, and powerful thought there so again a, a great point about dialogues is that we all learn from each other you know i i'm learning from this i'm not the same person now that i was when we started this dialogue which was an hour and 45 minutes ago roughly um, so I, I noticed the time is passing. We've got about 15 minutes left and it's a great conversation as always. And, uh, so uh, let's, let's keep it going and let's pick up on, on some of these themes. Uh, JK, uh, I have you next. Yeah, I think that, uh, the, uh, the notion of a unexamined life, um, and the difference, uh, between that and, um, the idea that ignorance is bliss. I think that's what, uh, uh, the point that Plato's point is that um, that uh, you know uh, examining life means that you understand some of the determinative forces you know in your life that come from without and within, and so if you were to ignore that, you would be just um, at the whim of all those all those forces that you don't you don't understand. And you would be just like an, uh, like an, like the, uh, you know, like the other animals in, in nature. Uh, they, they, just, they have instincts to do whatever they're destined to do. But in, in examining one's uh, life, you, you, I think you do derive a sense of self-determination, right? Rather than to be just determined. And that, uh, and that the whole idea of self-consciousness and, and the idea of self as a conscious being is the point here that um, that um, that the examined life, you know, is not worth living. I think it's maybe maybe it's a little bit extreme, you know, in that kind of uh, indictment of people who who are uh, living happy lives and not uh, not caring about. Uh, but it's like the uh, like the algorithms that are that are being produced that automatically learn, they don't understand how they develop those algorithms or how they operate, but they, they are able to develop them for self-learning. And, and, but whether they can control where that leads to, you know, 
is another question. And because those, I, I suppose that those, uh, those kind of algorithms are, are not, um, don't have to have do, do or do not have capacity for, for uh, self-examination. I'm not sure. <laughs> but if they did, they, then it might be a good thing, right? Uh, so I know. Thank you. Interesting uh, thought, you know, with the algorithms have the capacity of self-examination. And uh, uh, certainly, you know, I, I think the algorithms are programmed by humans. And to the extent that they're programmed by humans with imperfections who do not have perfect knowledge, then presumably the algorithms will embed um, paths for error. And uh, so maybe that's something that we need to really understand. And, and it does become a question maybe of temperance in those uh, who are programming the algorithms to really understand. You, you said, uh, JK, uh, an interesting point that just made me think of an answer maybe to that question about why everybody is here on this particular morning uh, participating in this particular session. Is it because I use some strange cosmic power to compel you all to be here? Or is it maybe because in the process of your own self-examination, uh, you saw some value in this session when you saw the, the meetup posting there? Is it is it maybe in some sort of self-examination process that you, you, you thought, well, maybe I would get something out of this and I'll spend my time. I have many ways I can spend my time, but I'll spend my time doing this. Um, so an interesting, maybe it just occurred to me, that's maybe an answer to that question. And I don't know if what others think. I, I, I love that question. What is it that brings you here? Um, so I don't know if there's any other thoughts on that particular answer. The other, the other point that I wanted to bring up, uh, and, I, and I'm not sure we've really touched on it as much as we as we could. Uh, we can obviously this discussion can carry on for a long time um, without any definitive conclusions, maybe, and that's always the problem with Plato or, or the challenge with Plato. I wouldn't say problem; it's a challenge that uh, there's many, maybe not definitive conclusions when we prefer definitive conclusions, but it. At 168a, um, the statement is made, but we are saying, it seems, that there is a science of this sort, which is a science of no branch of learning, but is a science of itself and the other sciences. And I just wondered if we have any sort of practical reference point for such a science. So is this idea of this science of self, uh, temperance is is a science that encompasses all other sciences, but it is not science. It's not a particular branch of science itself. So, you can't say that temperance is physics. You can't say it's chemistry. You can't say it's mathematics, because that's all in, involves specific knowledge. So, knowledge is always of something, right? I, I think Plato makes that point. Knowledge is always of something, and so how can you have knowledge of knowledge? Right? Is that maybe what I was talking about earlier? This kind of infinitely recursive idea, knowledge of knowledge, when we're not talking about knowledge of specific things like of of physics or you know the numbers of protons and neutrons in iron that you know causes a supernova to explode the instant it's forged. Right? We have knowledge of that fact. Do we know why? You know, and and so it's maybe that question of why is that kind of maybe more infinite type of recursive knowledge that never ends. 
Um, so I just wanted to throw that thought out in that particular passage at 168a, you know, that question, is there a science of other sciences, which is not of the particular things that those other sciences deal with, but of the other sciences as a whole? Uh, we'll go to Moshe. Uh, okay, let's take, um, uh, let's take the, um, uh, let's take the question and, and, and make it a little bit more finite. Uh, suppose we had a, a hundred sciences. That's that's all. Okay, we found out after exhaustive examination we had a hundred sciences. Okay, and so then um, ninety-nine of those sciences would be sciences about something, and the hundredth science would be the science of all those other sciences. So that you would say that, uh, that you know the hundredth science would know that there was a, a science of biology and that there was a science of physics and there was a science of psychology and a science of sociology and a, a science of, ma of mathematics, but it would be a science of nothing. And I took Plato's point to be that a science always has to be about something. And so, uh, so the question then becomes, is the subject of, in, in, in our universe where there are 99 independent sciences about something, is that a thing that can be known in and of itself? Okay, can you actually have a science that does nothing but know what the other sciences does? It sounds like you know we could be setting up some sort of, of um, you know paradox here. I'm, I'm not going to go down that um, uh, line, but I, I'm sure that there's one uh, uh, sneaking in the wind in the wings there. But if you had the science that simply knew all the other sciences. What's the point? I mean, who cares? I mean, if we go back to Donald's point that, you know, science, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, science is about, we, we have science of the body, you know, we have medicine, and that it, it's normative. Um, uh, let's say that you had a physics that could be so complete that it would be normative and we would be able to make predictions about what stars uh, not only have knowledge of the stars that have exploded in the past and that we have knowledge of those past things, but we could also predict accurately, you know, uh, explosions that hadn't even hadn't even occurred. Okay, and we don't do anything else with the science except know things with it. Right? Uh, is that um, um, would having a science of all those sciences, including knowing that other sciences are normative in some way, be of value to anybody? And I just can't see how it, how it would be. Who would want to pursue that kind of thing? I, I just don't, even the, even the silliest philosophers, I don't think would, you know, that's like the philosophy of, of shoes, shoe steps on the ceiling. You know, you, you're just not going to, nobody's going to do that. No one's going to take it seriously. I like the question. And, uh, you know, the, um, I like the way you started, you know, let's make it finite uh, in the example that you provided of, you know, a hundred, sciences, 99 of them being specific and 100 being what I'm thinking of as a mathematical derivative of the other 99. And so uh, the math and the geometry in my head starts to go because, you know, as I've explained to the, to the group before, I came to Plato by way of geometry, and I think that's fundamentally uh, important. And so when I'm thinking of derivatives and calculus, calculus reduces the infinite to the finite limits 
uh, and there's maybe something something to be had in that. Um, but this I, this idea that the hundredth uh, piece of of science and what you mentioned could be a derivative, I think, might be uh, something worth um, exploring. We can do that in a subsequent session. Uh, there is actually a transcendental um, idea that's presented in the Phaedrus, which we'll discuss in our next session. Uh, and that's where I see a very clear connection with the base of the natural logarithm. Um, so, you know, this idea of transcendental functions as well is important. We have just um, time for two more comments. So we've got JK and Jane, and then I think we'll have to wrap up today's discussion, unfortunately, but it's been such a great discussion. So thank you all and we'll go to jk and then jane okay yeah it's really interesting that um, plato you know uh, raised a question about uh, the whole idea of science as a kind of like a particularization or specialty you know uh of um, of inquiry that um that takes the particular study of particular area of knowledge and uh and breaks away from a more, you know, a holistic view. And that's the difference between philosophy and science, basically, right? Um, because today we don't think of, you know, a lot of people, a lot of scientists don't, don't, um, don't see the relevance of philosophy. There's been a whole movement of, uh, of anti-philosophy in the 20th century. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, because we're, you know, um, uh, science, the different fields of uh, areas of science has broken off from from philosophy and think that there is where the knowledge uh, lies and there's uh, it ends. And uh, but they um, but it's the it's, it's philosophy that wants to bring them all together and understand what is uh, what what is true knowledge, what is underst uh, self understanding, what is the understanding of of the the whole the self um, and uh, and so if you're a scientist of course you you know I uh, Stephen Hawking and um, the sciences scientists today um, believe that uh, you know they 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 have a uh, you know um, they have their area of inquiry and and they're sticking to it without uh, without any consideration of the of the philosophical um, uh, you know, inquiry uh, that um, that philosophy is concerned with, and um, basically, um, I'm 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 really uh, um, impressed that Plato asked that question that far back in the beginning. You know, where the scientists are going these different branches, but they they don't care about uh, viewing the tree as a whole and its roots. And so forth. So they're not concerned about what the fundamental questions are of ontology, metaphysics, and um, you know, axiology, and so forth, and all the areas of you know of philosophy. Thanks, and you you mentioned the particular, and then I'm thinking of you know the progression from the particular to the general. And so you know, if a if a particular science is of a spe specified discrete uh, area of knowledge. How do we move from particular knowledge to general knowledge? And uh, you know that image of the tree again that you mentioned at the end there, J.K. Uh, reminds me of the comment that was made earlier about, about the banyan tree. So, is there one tree 
with one root from which all knowledge branches out? Or is there a banyan tree of knowledge where the tree keeps putting down new roots? Uh, and do those new roots tie to the initial root? You know, it's interesting, interesting thought. So I'll leave my speaking at that point uh, to let Jane have the last word. Uh, and then we'll let uh, Eva wrap it up. So Jane. Um, just a quick remark, remark about what um, Moshe said. Um, this is just, this is not uh, how I see it, but this is um, an idea that I've come across. And I think it's, it's, it's an interesting idea to explore um, about having 99 sciences and then one science that sort of would ex explain uh, why uh, of the rest of the sciences. Um, I, I've seen this idea where those 99 sciences are sort of like, are like pieces of a puzzle and each puzzle piece has a lot of, uh, has, has a lot of function or utility or a lot of use. But the thing is, if you are able to put the puzzle pieces together, you get a whole picture that would, well, theoretically, fundamentally change the way that we perceive the world and each of the puzzle pieces in separate. So, yeah, just just sharing that idea that I came across. That's a great idea, Jane. And who is going to put the puzzle together? So uh, maybe that's maybe that's us in dialogue. Uh, I love that puzzle analogy. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for participating in today's discussion. I learned so much. And uh, again, I think that's that's the benefit of dialogue and, and why maybe it was Plato who compelled us to be here. Um, so maybe we'll continue to explore that question of why we are doing what we're doing yes, thank as you. we continue next time with our discussion on the Phaedrus. So we'll start with the first part of the Phaedrus and I'll post the, the, the point that we'll stop at. It's a, it's a long dialogue, so we can't tackle it all in one session, but we'll spread it out among uh, two sessions. So looking forward to that in two weeks and I'll pass it over to Eva to wrap up today's episode. Thank you for joining today's live discussion and class, friends. This was Plato's Pod with James Myers. Always exciting to hear various perspectives of uh, the knowledge and what you're seeking. We believe that would make Plato Eflatun happy and proud too. So if you would like to join the live discussion, you can find us online at Toronto Philosophy Meetup, Calgary Philosophy Meetup, Online, meet, online Rebels Meetup. I am Eva Ellis. It was my pleasure to coordinate this meeting. You have to see you and hear you at another episode. Bye.